Welcome back to Sheep Stuff. You should know this is Ryan Mahoney coming to you partially live from uh, the Amy Livestock Recording Studios in Solano County, California. And I am joined today by my co-host, Dr. Rosie Bush. How are you today? Where are you broadcasting from? I am broadcasting from my lovely office in Davis, California. So I noticed there in your, in your, unfortunately, this is a audio show, but in the, your background, you have a very nice lamp pelt. And I notice at the end of the lamp pelt, there's a little tiny black tail yep. on the pelt. And I'm curious <laughs> how you were able to secure a pelt with a tail. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> well, it actually has like the, let's see if I can do this. Ooh, I'm not a YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> there's white wool there. So it's just oh, like, yeah, it's an illusion. It's, just, it's an illusion. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. I was getting a little jelly seeing that. That was kind of cool with the little tail bit. So where'd you yep. get that pelt? That was the swag from the last live in-person ASI conference. Oh, that's right. We got one, but ours was all, the one I got was all gray. I mean, it was a, what? I mean, crossbred, just kind of a crossbred one. That's a really cool one. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those six, $700 ones you sell at the fair down in San Francisco. Right. <laughs> I'll keep this one. But yeah. Sure. All the vet conferences I go to, I get like a pen. Yeah. This is a lot better. <laughs> uh, sheep conferences are pretty cool for the swag. So <laughs> yeah, that was hopefully, hopefully maybe we'll get some stickers or something and pass out. I've always wanted, I want to keep talking to Dan about doing like a live recording down there. At oh, one that'd of the be ASIs. fun. It'd be really fun to kind of have a, just park somewhere in the middle of it and just record randomly and see who walks by. Yeah. <laughs> <That'd be cool. laughs> so how's everything been? How's, how's the vet life? The vet life has been good. It's been quiet, not a lot of phone calls recently. So I imagine people are really busy with other things. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's pretty, you know, it's crazy for my work life. This drought has taken all of the work that happens over 60 days or I'm sorry, 90 days and just has compacted it and squeezed it into like a 30 day period. So we're doing yeah. three times of work in a third of the time. It's pretty wild. Crazy. Pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. intense. How does the, how does like a drought or kind of a situation like that affect your job? Like these, I mean, I know you, you know, do you see any difference or is it type of calls you get or what, what are some of the changes you've seen from your end or how does your job differ? Well, so like this year it hasn't really changed much from last year, but probably because not me, I was so new last year at this point, but in the clinic, when we're seeing patients, it's a lot more, more of those kind of secondary problems that you would see when they're not getting, you know, maybe the right access to nutrition or things like that. That's neat. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I'm just going to jump right into the topic because I've been, I'm, it's pretty top of the mind for me and we've been dealing with it, but I wanted to talk about kind of, kind of feed health, feed and health management during a drought. You know, the, the, the needs are a little different and you tend to do things you normally wouldn't do uh, in a drought. At least we are in our situation. And so I just wanted to kind of try to try to visit on the, some of the basics and some of the particulars on what, what to look for when you're uh, approaching new feeds and short feeds and, and changes in the nutritional, the normal nutrition 
values of feeds. Um, and kind of for me, the main start, the main point to start from is the gains on our sheep, particularly in the last 30 days have been absolutely record breaking. And I'm curious, why is that? Yeah, that's been really interesting to see. Like, well, I think from a nutrition point of view, it's because the plant has is kind of storing that energy, right? So the energy that would be used in growing the length of that plant is all compacted down into this shorter leaf. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so you're getting kind of a bigger bang for your buck. And yeah, it's interesting because it's so much shorter, it doesn't last as long. But I'm curious, is there a way that you could potentially stretch that feed, even though it doesn't have the length? Yeah, not really. I mean, they kind of fill yeah. their gut with what they want to eat, right? So yeah. they kind of, it's hard to really, you know, gauge, gauge that well. Um, I'm shuffling papers for the... Because I yeah. want to sound sound really important, but um, I want just as an example, I wanted to to show you. So we sh we just sheared starting April first, and we had different bunches that we uh, pairs that we planned on weaning right after we sheared. And so I have um, where are we? So I have two hundred and fifty six lambs. I estimated weighing at seventy pounds, and then two hundred and forty one. I estimated at sixty five pounds. And then I had uh, another bunch at 60 pounds. Oh, no, 80 pounds, 155 at 80 pounds. So I had 80 pounds, 70 pounds, and 65 pounds. We weaned them two days after I wrote those notes, or not two days, one week, 10 days after I wrote those note down, notes down. The bunch I had marked 80 weighed 105, and the bunches I marked 70 and 65 weighed 95. Oh, my God. <laughs> Like everybody I've talked to just the, the density and the strength, like we call it, you know, the lambs are hard. They're really, really hard. Cause just they're so strong and muscular and dense. And it's just that, that the fill for our country, it's the fillery is normally it's a little more volume, pretty, um, it's very nutritious. They do really well, but it's just so packed with feed that they're just, they're incredible, incredible. The gains we've gotten. Yeah in the last huh. my neighbor we shipped some lambs from my neighbor he had his at 95 pounds 100 100 pounds here two weeks ago and we we weaned them off they weighed 115 it's just the same story all over it. it's oh, just unbelievable the gains and and um i don't know we kind of kept talking about how it's like the mojave deserts in the montezuma hills this year where we don't got no feed but the feed that's there is so strong yeah um so yeah, I don't, I don't know. You were kind of figuring out how to manage that. Um, and, and it's kind of a challenge. It changes really quick and they run out of that feed so fast. And so they'll go from eating that super dense fillery to then having access to foxtail or, um, some real thin, light, undeveloped ryegrass. And so I guess one of my questions is, is, you know, from a, from like a herd health standpoint, how do you, approach managing that change from grass to grass within a field 
that you're not used to having to deal with because the difference between these two feedstuffs is so great as far as nutrition density. At least that's my, that's my guess. Yeah. And it's... I'm guessing a lot of things here. <laughs> no, I mean, so like one thought I had was if there was a way you could stretch that really dense feed by adding, I mean, it, you can't add in a lot of situations, right? But if there was a way you could add something that would provide room and fill without the nutrition, so like a straw or a shell or something like that, I don't know if that, I mean, I get that in a lot of situations, dumping out onto pasture isn't really doable. But. Well, and I don't know if they'd take it, you know, because right. it's they free choice, them. right? Mm-hmm. They want that other stuff. They don't want the you know, whatever you're putting on. I did have a neighbor feed some almond holes this year and the sheep loved them. They did really oh, well yeah. with them. Yeah. And they have a lot of protein in them because they tend to have some like leftover residual yeah. nuts in there. Right when he started doing good with those and the price of them went up. <laughs> oh <laughs> man, someone found cheap. out his secret. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were cheap for a while and they <laughs> realized, hey, prices were high. So then they were able to bump them up. But huh. Yeah. yeah. And then I don't know from going, I mean, I guess it depends on where in the production cycle the sheep are, like you've just weaned. So now your ewes are at a maintenance level and you can afford to lose some condition. Um, so, you know, you've got that kind of stockpile of energy on her body that she can kind of go through slowly. So she's still getting that room and fill and, you know, where you run in to issues is when they're pregnant or in lactation, where you need that extra protein. Um, in a, in a perfect world, would you like where it's free choice kind of situation, would you, um, tighten up the field sizes and rotate more often? in this yeah. shorter year. And maybe, you know, if you were to add some kind of filler in that, you could keep them in that, like it's, they call it strip grazing, right? Where you yeah. kind of <laughs> make the pastures smaller and then you could keep them in there for longer, even though they don't have, so that, you know, they are kind of pushed to consume that lower nutritional value feed and then you can move them back to a higher nutritional value feed where it's are there any are there any risks when you're when you're adjusting their feed plane so drastically day to day you know where you go from day one is super high then you drop it and then you just come right back up kind of on a like a heartbeat graph i mean is there any long-term effects that you need to watch supplementation type things to look for yeah i don't know don't know the whole of my question. Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. I don't know. Most of the risks that I see with changing feed are usually relative to things that are high in starches. And so those, you know, like corn or whole grains, things like that, they'll, you need a different kind of rumen bacteria to help digest that. And so if those, their transition too quickly to those is when you get that rumen acidosis. But with like, grasses that have high, I don't know, because that's the interesting thing is I guess I don't fully know what's going on with these plants, but it's like, it seems like one has more 
fiber that's not digestible. So they don't get as much nutrition from it versus this one that you're experiencing now that has, it's more digestible kind of the mm-hmm. whole plant. So. Oh, what about like uh, unharvested grain fields that haven't really matured into a full seed head? Would those consider, would you consider those a high starch feed? That's so, such a tough question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know because I mean, there's all these things. So, like in our area, we have a lot of wheat and barley and grain crops like that. And um, because of the lack of rain, those crops have failed, but there's still grain out there, but it's not really plentiful like it is when you're harvesting it. And then in going in on a harvested grain field, you have fully developed grain on the ground that they pick mm-hmm. up. And then you have the chaff and the straw that they'll eat. But this type of feed is a much different type of a stubble. And we don't feed this almost ever. Nobody grazes a grain crop and then feeds it off. They always harvest it and sell the grain because it's worth more. And so we're approaching these feeds and I have questions in my mind on exactly how do I, how do I approach it? How do I move the sheep in time? How do I anticipate them running out of feed? Because that stubble, the grain stubble, when it's harvested, you can really push it down to, so to say, the dirt. And there's a ton of feed still left in that pasture. Whereas now you're really focused on this, on these grasses and it's not a lot of grain, but there is grain. You know, how do you, how do you know when you're out of feed and not, and then what kind of, what kind of things are you doing to their gut that normally I wouldn't have to supplement that you probably do have to now? Yeah. I mean, I think because there's not a lot of grain, like mature grains on that grass, that it wouldn't have that risk. I don't think you have the risk of getting ruminacidosis from grazing out there. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, maybe you might experience more bloat than you're used to, but you, I mean, you guys graze on alfalfa, so it wouldn't be any different from what you might prepare for when you're grazing that. Do you think, should you use a, um, I just, you know, on something like that, would you, we, we tend to just throw basic trace mineral salt blocks out there, but on like our alfalfa, we'll do like a more comprehensive with some, um, some uh yeasts and things that help with the uh, rumen i mean you probably i'm just thinking out loud you probably want something like that rather than just straight blocks on this yeah. type of feed whereas like on the grain we more supplement just straight trace minerals right yeah i think i mean yeah. that makes sense anything that you can help the rumen kind of keep its normal <laughs> digestive yeah. function when it's transitioning like that so kind of the other question I had is, um, is the utilization of molasses tubs or, or protein tubs to help utilize these poor feeds? Um, you know, there's always, last few years, there's always kind of been a debate in our office here on, do you feed tubs so they love tubs and eat them as their primary protein source and then they eat more of the other stuff? Or do you not feed the tubs, work on the minerals and just work through or so to say force them through that as long as they're kind of holding or maintaining a a mid-range body condition while they're not lactating to me it makes sense to add a protein source because when those especially when you're talking about dry feed because they're those feeds have like 
no protein in them. I mean, very low. So, and then, you know, by adding that protein source, you're kind of maintaining rumen health while they're getting the fill and the fiber from the dry feed. The other thing though, that you have to consider is energy. And I imagine the molasses helps provide the energy for that. Um, but that might be where, you know, some folks might do like grain or add something to that mix to kind of. Is protein energy? Protein is a form of energy, but it's it might be a more expensive form of energy. Yeah. Versus like a carbohydrate or. Mm -hmm. yeah. Hmm. yeah. So like if you kind of balanced between your energy and your protein sources, you might get more out of the dry feed that's out there. How about going into dry feed in a different uh, production cycle or production stage than what we're in? What about going on a dry feed with pears? You know, what, what would some of the cautions be for you or, you know, things to look for? Well, there's going to be really low, um, like your micronutrients and your macronutrients are not going to be there really. And then even the vitamins, because most vitamins are, uh, we call them volatile. So they're not stable in dry, hot conditions. So they tend to not be good anymore. Um, so that would be where you would add, you know, those supplements should have things like vitamin B, vitamin E, those kinds of things. But yeah, I think that's why a lot of people are like, just wean early, like get them yeah, off because them it takes a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. What about, um, this is totally aside, but what about shearing lambs? If you're going to stay on dry feed and shearing lambs, is there more than just getting the wool off them that shearing does to that animal? Because everybody says like, you know, you shear them, they'll gain better. They do better. I was just curious if there's any, if you've heard of anything that, you know, really points to, yeah, if you, you know, you shear them, you know, they're going to, they're going to be able to handle the feed better. They're going to be more, you know, I don't know what that effect on the body does. I don't know that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll I have to look that up. I don't know. That's that'll be a fun, we'll get, do an update later because yeah. <laughs> knowing you you're going to spend the next four hours digging through scientific yeah. papers to yeah. <laughs> to it'll be my out. rabbit hole for the afternoon <laughs> yeah perfect sorry <laughs> ruined your day of production so good <laughs> yeah uh but no i have heard that and just anecdotally it seems like when you shear them um they i don't know they metabolize better or they just they they do better when you when you shear that lamb it's pretty pretty fascinating Huh, and cool. I've had arguments. My grandpa says it doesn't matter and he's seen a lot more sheep than me. So I, I don't like to disagree with them, but then I've also seen a, you know, in the sheep that we've seen when we shear, they do do a little better, especially if you're going to leave them on kind of hot, dry climate, the stickers don't get into them. The, 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 like the mites and those external parasites really don't bother them as much when they're shorn. And uh, anyway, I don't know. I well, that's what I a, was going to work on this afternoon was a grant proposal for external parasites. So. <laughs> Well, what a segue. Yes, I know. No, what a segue to my next question. Shearing. Uh, I was just going to add that yeah. I could see both sides, you know, right? Because they're going to be growing wool, whether it's on them or shorn off of them. So that kind of output. So having to grow fiber is going to be there no matter what. But then those other factors like light, you know, the lice and all of that are 
now gone because they're exposed to sun and heat and all of that. So maybe that adds yeah. to their ability, you know, taking away something that's kind of competing for those nutrients from them. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. I'm always shocked when we, I've said this a lot, that wool episode we talked, uh, Dan and I talked was, uh, I've always been surprised at how many sheep that we buy in have external parasites and not small loads, like pretty, pretty substantial loads. And so I wonder if you might have touched on something there that the shearing actually relieves that burden and that lack of parasite pressure is one of the main reasons why they quote unquote do better when you shear. Yeah, I'm that's, really. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So my, ne my next question or my next rabbit hole I want to go down is kind of talk about parasite control on, um, on dry feeds. Okay. I, um, I got an argument with, with Jeff when he was working for us because he wanted to worm all our sheep, uh, with Valbazin when we were on stubbles. And I was like, what in the world are you thinking? There ain't no pair. Look at them. They're no dirty butts. They're totally fine. Like, why would you waste Valbazin right now on that? And he swore by it and he, you know, I, I let him win the argument and, uh, I don't know. I'm curious. What do you, what, why is that important? And what kind of parasite pressure do you see when you're on those real dry feeds? So there are, let's see, you have less problems with homunculus because homunculus needs that moisture to be able to kind of get out and do its thing. But there are other parasites like I believe the the brown stomach worm and the bankruptcy worm, all of those. They bankruptcy I think, worms. Are great yeah, name. it's a appropriate <laughs> name, right? Yeah, very good name. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta love that about that. a lot of livestock industries are just like very to the point <laughs> with a yeah. lot of their names. <laughs> but yeah, and they so they I think we see more of those in California because we do have a drier climate. And so they do better in warmer, like summer months like we have. So there could be some truth to that, but I think it's always worth having that kind of back and forth because, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's something where doing a, a fecal test might kind of tell you if you're really in a high risk season for that. Yeah, what kind of pushed us to do it was we necropsied cheap and you know, ones that died and, and we didn't need cropsy live ones. That'd be impossible. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, like we'd have ewes that would die on the dry stubble and we'd get them necropsied and then we'd always pay attention to the worm count. And it was pretty decent. It wasn't, you know, I thought there was nothing out there, but there was definitely pressure. And then I have seen sheep come in off of like custom grazing jobs into the feedlot and they'd have the, um, they'd have really bad worm loads with that. Uh, anyway, where they got like the bottle jaw and everything oh, yeah. and it's coming off of dry forage. And yeah. Uh, so I, and I, I think part of that too, is that, you know, if they don't have the protein and the micronutrients available to them to really help their immune system, even if it's not like the riskiest time of year for parasites, because their immune system isn't maybe at its peak, they are going to, those parasites are going to take advantage of that. So. And what's the importance of the, like how much do you, do you have any, I don't know. I'm trying to, 
trying to like visualize it or, or, or put the effect that a parasite load or, or, uh, internal or external has on the nutrition demand of the, of the animals. So do they, they eat more, they don't convert as well. And, in a, and sometimes in a, they actually eat less cause they don't feel good. So it has a well, huge that's a reason and, to not, not cure it on a drought year, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to eat more, <laughs> we eat less. <laughs> to a point, right? <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. a veterinarian. For a proper... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but it, and that's why it's so hard to measure the actual economic impact that these parasites have because they're, they're not even, I mean, they're not only competing for nutrients, right? Because they consume protein and they consume energy from the host. But so that's, nutrient loss there, but they're also driving the immune system to a different level, which takes energy. So you're losing energy in kind of these different points. So it's, it's more losing efficiency of the feed right? more than volume plus. Or yeah. Volume. Rather than all that nutrition going into animal maintenance, it's also going to the parasite and it's going to the immune system. So I've been really impressed with the information and research coming out of the Katahdin breed on their work on the FAMACHA program and the importance of actually having a healthy parasite population within a herd that's mm-hmm. controllable. And I, I the really... The refugia. Been, yeah, the refugia. And I mean, we've done that on our cows and our ewes, not as much this year, but we did do it last two years and... and um I, I really, really, really think that's pretty important. And when you're looking at worms, you don't want to eliminate all worms. You want to eliminate most worms. And Yeah. And I think it's kind of coming from, I mean, most people would love to just sterilize their pastures and get rid of all worms. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even grow any feed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so realistically, we're not actually going to get rid of all parasites. So it's learning to live with them in a way that you can manage. So if we continued to treat every animal, then the only parasites less left would be the ones that survived that treatment. So then your treatment's not going to work on them. And so then you're kind of out of options. So it's trying to, you know, figure out, I think, you know, a lot of the tools that have come out of selective treatment and pasture management are ways to keep a healthy population of parasites, something that we can manage and live with. So yeah, yeah I think it's pretty neat. Yeah. 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 It's, it's um, a hard concept to, I don't know when I, when I first started reading about those, I was like, yeah, right. Like we're not going to worm animals. Like that's a hard one to transition to if you're used to worming everything, because that's, you know, like there's a lot, there is risk involved, right? What happens if you don't worm them? Yeah. I mean, I don't have the answers, but I do think it gets back to that. Once you accept that you work in directions, not ultimatums or specifics, then you end up, you end up being able to understand how to approach so many different problems or diseases. Cause if you try to, if you got a worm problem and your whole focus is eliminate all worms, you're now falling into that temptation of single trait selection, single thing and you end up doing so much damage to the diversity of a, you know, your, your ranch is a diverse biosphere where I don't know what you want to call it. I'm not 
two up ecosystem. On, yeah. <laughs> all the all the terms. But yeah, you have this diverse ecosystem. You have this diverse plant life. You have this diverse uh microorganisms and all sorts of stuff in this place. And if you try to eliminate and control it too much, you end up hurting yourself some other way you would have never anticipated. And so it's really important to kind of always work in that directional mentality where you know, you got, you want a parasite control program, not a parasite elimination program. You need a, you know, same thing with noxious weeds and all sorts of stuff. You need to eliminate them best you can, but don't sacrifice, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't spray 2,4-D on your clover to get rid of all of the, you know, the star sticker on the, on the ridges and eliminate all of your clover. (laughs) Make sure you, you know, do it, do it the best you can and work within what you got. Yeah. So, so I had a question for you. I was curious if, you know, we were talking about feed supply and things like that. And I was curious if you've, you'd mentioned before that you've applied compost to some of your pastures. Have you noticed that you have any more like water retention or have you noticed that that feed in that area has kind of grown longer than the, I don't know how to ask the question. But. Yeah. So we, we applied compost at 300 acres this year from, and it was composted with rice straw and sheep manure from our feed yard. And, um, and it's, it made the entire city of Rio Vista smell horribly for a period of two and a half days in which Facebook decided to blame a sewage treatment facility rather than us. And when we tried to Sweet. correct, yeah, when we tried to correct them. They, they, they banished us from the chat room and said we were liars spreading false information. <laughs> it was really funny to see how people make up their minds. That, that's <laughs> gospel. Really, yeah. It was really fun. But anyway, um, we spread it out on this one field and then we planted a cover crop in on top and it was peas, barley, wheat, and daikon radish. And the, um, it started incredibly well. I was really excited. It was a beautiful crop. The barley jumped out of the ground. The peas came up and climbed the barley and then it stopped raining and it wasn't very good. We grazed it off once tight and then we pulled the sheep out. It has regrown since. It seems like the radish is still holding some green right now. Some of the barley is. Um, anecdotally, I think it's holding a little bit more moisture, but it's such a dry year and there's no... Yeah. There's no moisture underneath the soil, so there's nothing to keep the moisture on top. And so it just, it's really, it's hard to measure on a year like this. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that confidently. I'd say anecdotally, my hunch is, yeah, but, um, and I do think we have, you see better health in the ground there. Um, You see better, you know, like I said, that, that feed jumped. Um, but then when you look at the MPK and the, the, the nitrogen volume on the, on that compost is pretty, pretty stout. So it, it definitely, it definitely did what the nutrients said it would do. Um, but then compost, one of the beauties of it is that macro work that it does in the soils. And so I, yeah. I really don't know how to measure that. And on a drought year like this, it's really, I don't know. Yeah. Hard. It might be something that'll play out over a couple of years. I need Dan. I need Dan to come visit. And like, <laughs> yeah. He can tell us. So, 
I love I love that I love that you and I were we're talking about rangeland pasture management with without the pasture management guy. I am sure he'll get a kick out of this. Like, what are they yeah. even talking about? Yeah. Oh, that's wrong. I need to call in and correct them. So we'll take the, okay. we'll take the messages and we will happily ignore them and. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, so one of the other things I had, uh, well, like what about kind of herd health protocols? What kind of anomalies or, or things would you be more concerned of in a dry year that you wouldn't be so concerned of in a, in a wet year? So toxic plants tend to be more of an issue in a dry year. Um, what are some of the co- common tox- toxic plants in California? Common ones. You don't have to list them all. Just a couple of them. The most common ones that I see are not necessarily in um, commercial operations. So like oleander and rhododendron are, I mean, I imagine you see those there. Oleanders we had, so there is a a museum that had oleanders along a fence line and every year we'd go in and have to hack them down in the spring to keep them off our fence line. If we didn't do it, we'd lose two, three calves a year. They'd get into the oleanders and yeah. I hate that They're stuff. They're nasty buggers. Yeah. <laughs> we so moved pretty, in... but man, they, yeah. Yeah. When we moved up, we were living in Grimes for a few years and it was kind of the hedgerows between our house and the orchard next door. And I <laughs> had small kids at the time. I made Brian hack them all down. <laughs> oh, I was like, I don't want these. <laughs> yeah, we had them growing up. I, I chewed on a couple leaves and ended up you're still here oh no i I don't don't eat oleanders it's not a good idea Um, idea. yeah consult your vet if you (laughs) but But yeah yeah, no um, those are definitely big uh rhododendrons i i didn't know that about them so yeah they make sheep and goats vomit like out of family guy like it's yeah pretty crazy it's not good um yeah but and it's usually from garden clippings people throw garden they like oh i pruned my garden i throw it over the fence for the neighbors because they're being nice because it looks cute yeah (laughs) the sheep are like "Ooh, this looks fancy and it never ends well but so that's got to be a pretty healthy risk in some of these custom grazing deals in urban areas is to watch those yeah yeah i mean i am very impressed by folks that do it very successfully you have to have not only do you need to have you know great husbandry skills but you really need to know your plants that's a lot (laughs) but yeah um i guess pine needles are another one the ponderosa pine is pretty toxic to cattle not so much sheep or goats but cattle what about there's an acorn thing or a that's in a fall with a freeze or something like that or what in the drought years the oaks produce more acorns and they so they have a really heavy drop in the fall of dry um falls and that one's really interesting because depending on who you talk to it's a problem or it's not a problem at all so like dan's sheep he's like oh man they go out there and they run to the acorns and is it acclimation you think just like yeah i think so yeah so, yeah, and it's kind of like tannins and things like that. Like there's got to be just a different room and environment, you know, a lot like different grains and things like some so can Can you break down better. just, just, I, I'd, I'd like it for myself because I'm, I, I just sound like I know things, but I don't. Did um, you talk about just the basics of the rumen and how it works and why, like, why gut health 
is important and what that means? Yeah. The Brumen is <laughs> the coolest part about ruminants. It's why they're so aptly named. Um, but it, so ruminants have four stomachs, right? So they have the abomasum, um, which is kind of their true stomach. But okay, let's go from the mouth. So it goes into the reticulum, which is a tiny little sac that kind of squeezes. It does one of the contractions, makes everything mix in the rumen. The rumen is the biggest compartment. And the rumen is where all the bacteria, all the protozoa, there's a lot of life in there. And it's amazing. It's like a fermentation fat. Um, and then from there, small particles and fluid goes into the omasum, which we don't really know what that does. <laughs> Maybe it sucks, like it de might dehydrate the food. And then the dry particles go into the abomasum, which is like our stomach. So the rumen is where all the action happens. So it's why they can make, you know, meat out of sunshine and dirt and you know, like these typically like these really difficult to digest fibers, they can digest them in the rumen. But you know, kind of like we're talking. Ferments, so it ferments it kind of like a silage pile where it just ferments it into digestible fiber yep. or so. Exactly. And there's huh. it's a whole ecosystem in there. So there's some bacteria that do really great with poor digestible fibers but they take a really long time to grow and do their job. And then there's some bacteria that do really great with um, starches and things like that. And they grow really fast. So they kind of outcompete the other bacteria. So, hmm. you know, it kind of goes back to your point of how do you avoid transitioning feeds? It's mostly because you're worried about those bacteria that are doing their jobs. And if you change their job too quickly, you don't have the right, bacteria in there. So, so when you're feeding some of these like yeasts and things like that, you're basically encouraging or discouraging specific types of bacteria growth to help balance that competition. That's the hope. Yeah. And it's, so one of the things like probiotics and things like that, they're, yeah. the problem with them is they don't really, um, they don't last long. So you kind of have to feed them over and over and over again, because they do, they do help change that environment, but they kind of die and go down the rest mm -hmm. of the digestive tract. Um, so, but by adding them, you kind of buffer that, like that, that change doesn't happen as drastically because you're adding something that can help digest, you know, that's a little bit different. Versus when you're transitioning to a diet, you do it over time to allow that bacteria population to change on its own. Okay. Huh. That's interesting. So then when you're going, I mean, that's, yeah, it's super important then to be paying attention to that as you're transitioning feeds. Yeah. <laughs> and so when, when you have like rumen, rumen acidosis, that is, uh, what is that? That, that's, so rumen acidosis is when you have the bacteria that grow really fast. They produce lactic acid as their byproduct, basically. And it drops the pH in the rumen. So it becomes more acidic. And that bacteria, that particular bacteria, likes a low pH. And so it makes more lactic acid. And it's kind of this downward spiral. And so if you don't have a good 
balance of kind of that, um, the fiber that those slower growing bacteria thrive off of, then those, the lactic producing bacteria tend to overgrow. Okay. So the, yeah, that's fascinating. And so that's why my grandpa always says, if you got a problem, first step is always feed some average quality alfalfa because it has both, you know, it's a very balanced feed that has fiber and that, and that helps whatever, whatever's going on in the gut helps bring it back to neutral. And yeah. That's why that, that's why that works. Yeah. And I don't know, when I was in the clinic, I liked things like oat hay or they, to me in my brain, it was like, these were the saltine crackers that kind of, you know, the dry toast (laughs) (laughs) when you're not feeling good. It just kind of gives them energy, something to keep going, but it's not something that's going to further upset their system. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, that is cool. Um, so then, uh, what we said, toxic plants, anything else to look at for, you know, in a drought year that you'd be looking for herd health wise, maybe. I know foot yeah. rot is like nothing to worry about. It's great. <laughs> yeah, not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dan and I did a video on foot rot and it was like, well, I feel like this is an unfair year to talk about foot rot. Cause there was not, <laughs> I mean, we didn't have one you with foot rot, so yeah, I know he's been working on it, so maybe he's to that point. But yeah, that's what I keep telling myself, and then I'm like, wait, we only got five inches of rain. There's just yeah, <laughs> there's it's no just challenge. not a problem this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we haven't had a challenge. But. Yeah, I mean, you know, water. Um, so it's like salt toxicity is a problem when they don't have enough access to water. Um, you and know, then you that get was them the craziest thing. Then, Sorry to cut you off, but that was the craziest (laughs) disease problem I ever saw in my whole life was we had um, salt poisoning in a set of sheep that came in. The producer held them off water for like, it was just, it was circumstance deal. And they ended up, they were off water for like four days. And then we got them in the feedlot and they all, we had water, we have water everywhere because that's what we do. First thing you make sure they have is water and feed. And, um, they hit the water trough super hard and we started vaccinating them. And as they were coming out of the vaccination chute, they all started like hemorrhaging, seizuring and, and dying on us. And it yeah. was, I was scared to death. I had no idea what happened and it was absolutely just mind blowing what the cause was when my veterinarian came out and explained to me what happened. I was just I was, I was blown away. <laughs> yeah. And it's crazy. So when they're off of water for that long, I mean, it's so neat. The brain really needs to protect how much water it has, right? Like it has to have the right amount of water so that those nerves can function. So it produces these, they're called idiosmoles or something like that. But anyway, it, it's like fake salt. So it produces these things so that it can keep water in the brain over other parts of the body. And then they get access to water and it just like rushes in. So their brain swells Yep. and that's, I mean, there's, and then they die. And <laughs> it's the, crazy. But then the, the, the thing that was fascinating to me was, was how, uh, when I talked to the vet, that what you do for it is feed salt is one of the ways to stop. Right. Like it's because salt poisoning, part, but you need to feed salt. Yeah. But part, part of it too, is that they've been deprived of salt also. So you have to like give both slowly kind of at the same time it's yeah it's really interesting yeah so it's that that 
that example is just another one of those huge examples that is so important when you're selling lambs or shipping lambs or anything to not hide anything to make sure you share what happened yeah. because like situation like that, if they would have told us and we would have been prepared, we could have easily released them on pasture with mm-hmm. um, no access to the water trough and they could rehydrate off of the green grass and then mm-hmm. have yeah, access slower. to the water and they would have not had the problem. And so it's really important as a producer to make sure that when you ship or when you're selling that you're honest with the condition you're selling them in. I mean, it, that's an extreme example, but then you can have the opposite where you fill them up too much and it's not a fair way in condition or there's all sorts yeah. of in between, but it's really important that you just, you know, if something happens to care and communicate that. So that way it all works down the line, because if you don't say anything like us, we receive, you know, thousands of lambs through that yard every year. And we just treated them like every other lamb, get them on water, then go ahead and process them and put them to the pen and get them feed. And that process, that was the one scenario that doesn't work in that process. And if we would have known, we could have maybe adjusted. So yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. I don't well, know. This, the rumen is yeah. amazing. And I just, I was thinking about what you were asking with the heartbeat, um, sort of like good feed, bad feed kind of thing. And, but the rumen, like, I mean, you, we kind of just talked about it. Like you can the rumor, hold them. Yeah. The rumen buffers it. That's it what buffers it does. It. Yeah. You can hold them off feed for days and there's still feed in there. And, you know, I mean, there, so there's, it's, it's amazing what they can kind of, be put through or go through and, and just it, it's, yeah, that rumen is pretty remarkable. So yeah, I think that's why we can what's manage the, in these different ways. What's the number one recommendation Dr. Rosie Bush has for good rumen health for sheep in a, any operation? Number one thing to look for. What, what makes a healthy rumen? The one thing that I love looking for is ruminating animals. So when they're chewing their cud, you know, things are moving well. You know, that rumen is moving a couple times a minute. So it's constantly mixing. Um, And that could be on any kind of feed. So, but that chewing their cud and that motion of watching that rumen is kind of. That'd be a good indicator for like on these grasses when we're rather than a grain stubble to kind of watch that rumen you know that that chewing the cud type behavior versus more of a walking even with the full stomach that might be a very good indicator i'm just thinking out loud but it sounds like that's a pretty dang good indicator of when it's time to start moving yeah yeah hmm. <laughs> very cool well i'm glad i was selfish this a- episode and ask all the <laughs> advice for my own particular place but hopefully somebody <laughs> got something out of that but um yeah that was interesting that was really cool Really, yeah, really, we'll cool. see what Dan thinks about it. <laughs> oh, I had one more question. Um, yeah. How do mineral deficiencies, so like copper selenium uh, deficiencies in sheep, manifest themselves visually? What are signs of mineral deficiency? So, wool, um, I think breakage is probably the most common. So, like, wool becomes brittle when they're lacking those things on other species like goats and cattle, they'll change color with copper. Like they'll get, they'll be Brown if they're meant to be black kind of a thing. And they, their, their coat, their hair coat looks kind of scruffy. 
So on sheep, that wouldn't be as obvious. Um, if you had colored sheep, then which I know you don't really have, but you might yeah, like 32. see. Th- oh, there you go. They could be yeah. your indicators. There <laughs> There's a reason to keep some. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the brittleness on the wool, I think, is huh. one way that they might manifest visually. Yeah, cool. All right. <laughs> well, that's my whole list for today. Cool. Um, yeah. You want to take us out? Take us out yeah. this time? Okay. <laughs> well, this was Sheep Stuff You Should Know with Ryan Mahoney and Dr. Rosie Bush. Yeah. Shoot us messages on Instagram if you got any, and we'll talk yeah. to you later. Apparently, I need to change my Instagram handle because it's really hard to say. <laughs> what do you mean? At CC slash extension. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, super easy. Just might need to work l- on that. <laughs> look up sheep and goat. Yeah. Maybe you'll find it. All right, Dr. Bush, cool. take it easy. Thank you. All right. See ya. Thanks. Bye. Bye.